Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme, on a cool cloudy autumn day here in the capital, is Jim Liptrot. Jim is the Managing Director at Howarth Air Tech, a company that was first established in the 1800s to improve air quality in cotton mills and has developed an awful lot since then. Uh, Jim, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thanks, Scott. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start with that because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself and Howarth Airtech, just to what extent it affected you and your business? Well, it has been a massive challenge. It's certainly been a massive challenge for me and I mean, if you like, the more advanced years of, of, of leadership and I've faced many challenges through my life of, of handling large redundancies, handling administration. And I have to say that uh, this current situation is the most challenging I've ever come across because usually even in those situations where you, you do deal with redundancies or, or administration even, you know that when you get to a point from that point on it becomes very positive with covid it's about keeping people positive whilst not knowing what the next uh, turn is going to be so it has been uh, challenging to the business but we've we've come and are coming through it very very strongly uh, in the very early days um, we we did invoke some some furlough and, and but right across the business we we decided to take cuts in salary from director level right through the business um, just to make sure that we could carry this business safely through with, with jobs intact, and that has been the case. I think the other thing is because all of a sudden we were plunged into this world of people having to suddenly work from home, something that mm. um, was really, really challenging. Um, the big challenge there then was First of all, would our infrastructure hold up to it? We've got a, a lot of design engineers and, and we knew that that could stretch our IT platforms. Um, and then also, how do we make sure that we communicate with them and keep them healthy, uh, mentally fit for people facing so much uncertainty? So we're coming through it very strongly and we our communications have actually improved through that period. Mm, and in terms of the bit, sorry, sorry, Scott. No, I was just going to ask sort of how personally you'd managed to uh, sort of find it leading from a distance and having to adapt to doing things that way. Well, it was challenging. I mean, as a person, I've never really been a centre of attention person. So even when I became MD at the start of 2018, uh, it, it felt a strange place to be. So um, y- you can imagine suddenly after having to communicate via by a video link, if you like, it was a challenge. Um, but we roasted the challenge. I've got a lot of 
what I call an invisible workforce supporting me. So I was working very closely with the then commercial director of GSK up at Ulverston in the mentoring role, uh, which was part of uh, a government initiative called Mentoring for Growth, where the blue chip businesses support the um, smaller businesses. And, and, and he's still in, I'm still in contact with a guy called David Miller, who's since retired, but he's still helping the company from a distance. Um, and then the, there's other people I work with, a guy called Jerry Hopkins, who I do a lot of engagement training with, and Paul Winterbottom on a, something called the Tab Board. And these are all external uh, people that are supporting the business development. So I spoke to David Miller and he informed me about GSK doing video briefs. So I decided to do a, do a video brief um, to everybody just to let them know what was happening right across the business, how we were looking after them, how we were looking after the business. Um, and from that, having spoken to one of the other guys, the, uh, Jerry, uh, who does the employee engagement, he then offered to host live video briefs. That was extremely challenging, um, but it's proved to be immensely successful in that we now do a live brief right across the company on um, a Zoom-type platform where people can can come on uh, and listen to the brief live and we also put the recording out but we'll get to we've got 124 employees and we regularly get north of 90 people listening live to the brief but also at the end asking questions now particularly early on i felt absolutely drained when i finished those briefs because the briefs are written literally pulled together on the day because everything's changing so rapidly so it's not like a normal business brief where you can prepare that in advance I was literally pulling together the brief in the morning and in the afternoon going live with all my fellow directors on screen. And then at the end of, of the brief, as I've said, which normally takes about half an hour covering all aspects, some of the positive things that are going on, some of the challenges that are going on, how each area of the business is performing. And then always a bit at the end where we talk about people's mental fitness. So... The, the benefit that I talked of, uh, our communications have improved because we're making sure that we we talk to people regularly. We don't do phone calls, actually. We 90 plus percent of our communications are with uh, cameras on. And, and the reason for that is it's twofold. Obviously, just being able to see each other helps. But more importantly, we can we can check on people's mental fitness as well. Because we've thrown people into a world or they've been thrown into a world that, that they've never seen before. None of us have ever seen before. And I've always been a great believer in, in keeping your, your body fit to keep your mind fit, etc. So when people are suddenly stuck at home behind the computers uh, day in, day out, part of the problem is getting them to switch off and work to some routine. So we always have this session at the end on mental fitness. Uh, and we 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 made the deliberate move to, as I said earlier, put people on camera. So it's been challenging. It's been challenging for everybody. Many different emotions, people handling it differently. And we've got to understand how each of our team members need the support. It's exactly it, isn't it? Because mental health and well-being is so, so important uh, within leadership, especially in the context of the here and now, where it has been thrust back into the limelight of the national discussion. But despite having to sort of 
get through all of these challenges and sort of mentally steal yourself for the challenge of dealing with that yourselves. Um, have you actually learned anything from this experience of adapting to a new reality and can take things forward as a real positive? There's a massive positive. It's actually quite exciting times really because one of the things we've learned is hey, there's a new way of working and we, we are going through a massive culture change which started in in 2018, when I became the, the managing director, because as I, as I've said in, in in brief chats before, Scott, my drug is the development of people. So when I came to Howarth, um, I genuinely came because I realised that everything this company does is save lives. So what a great opportunity for me, who loves to see people develop, but I know that everything we do is going to impact positively on people's lives. So what what the current situation has done is it's really taught us how to adapt to the change uh, and the changing environments that we're always going to live in. So many years ago uh, at British Aerospace, you can tell how long it was because uh, British Aerospace offered everybody £100 a year to go on some training, providing mm-hmm. it was certificated, and I couldn't. At the time, I always asked questions. So I said, what's all that about? You know, people can go on flower arranging, um, providing they've got a certificate. And now it was explained to me, well, Jim, life changes, the world changes, the business world changes. So if we can get people up for development in any way, they're going to adapt to change better. Well, one thing that this, this coronavirus period will show us, that if we pull together as a team, if we're very open and honest and live by the you know, the behaviours of the Howarth Way, which in our case is in is integrity, collaboration and excellence. If we live mm. by those behaviours, um, we will really take this business forward to, to the next level. And, and be, that openness and honesty with clients in a period like this is absolutely vital. And also for our team having the purpose of, of what we do is vital as well. So, so the positives are is we know that we can adapt to change we know that we'll continue to, to have to adapt to change. And one, one of the things we've seen is a massive uh, improvement in team spirit. It was already strong. But again, something I introduced in 2018 was the first ever independent employee surveys. And I waited with bated breath to see what the what the outcome would be from that. And it was, it was quite positive. We had over 90% of people responding and we had quite a few areas to improve. So two surveys on from that, we put a survey out in, in the middle of this coronavirus. And I think some of the some of the other leaders may have questioned the sanity that to put a, an employee survey out in this period. But what I can tell you is that out of 124 surveys that we, we pushed out to our team, we had 124 returned. And cynics may say, well, yeah, well, we can all get that if, if we push people. However... Those returns also showed that in a score of one to five, we averaged 4.5 out of five of people being proud to work for this organisation. And I honestly believe that a lot of it is down to people realising more than ever that what we do is vital, particularly in the fight against coronavirus, for example. So, you know, we're working with some of the big pharmaceutical companies to, to manufacture equipment that they can produce COVID vaccines in, for example. That gives a real focus when people around the business are, 
are seeing people being affected by coronavirus. And, and you can come up with any challenge, whether it's cancer, whether it's open heart surgery, we are helping provide solutions for every single one of them. So in a way, this period has really underlined our purpose for being being around in this business. And just for those younger generations of listeners that may be listening to this podcast and could be a little bit downhearted at the moment, looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the economy and on their employment prospects, as somebody yourself who's enjoyed quite, um, of course, a distinguished uh, career in business, what message would you have to give them to really get them on the road to success and pick their heads up during this time? I think it's just having that uh, that real focus, the belief in themselves. Uh, I'm a great believer in work experience in schools uh, because I think one of the problems is there is a, a, a lack of knowledge of what's going on in, in industries at times because we've, we've veered away from work experience uh, projects at times. But we've taken on two apprentices in all this time, two office apprentices at that. And, and if people have got the right attitude, they they can achieve whatever they want to achieve. So stand out from the crowd. If I give you another example, previous to the two that have just literally started in the last week, one of the guys uh, that we'd taken as apprentice, he, he did work experience with us. And when we inter- when we put the interview out, the lad walked for an hour and 40 minutes just to get his interview because he knew that he wanted to work for this company. And the reason that he did that was because his mum was shielding at home. He wouldn't go on the bus because he didn't want to risk contaminating her, but he, de- he desperately wanted this job. Now, if you've got that sort of attitude, that makes you stand out from the crowd. So it's very difficult for youngsters because how do you pick off a CV? So go and knock on somebody's door, say, can I do a bit of work experience for you? I spoke to a, a, a guy the other day and he was talking about two young people years ago that had knocked on his door and basically said of his factory and said, is there a Saturday job where we can clean up or anything? And they started on careers and they've gone on to be to be managers. So never ever turn any opportunity down. And it doesn't matter if you think about, if you're going in for an interview, for example, and people might ask you a little bit about teamwork. Well, teamwork can can happen anywhere. You, you can be involved with teamwork at school. You can be, even be involved work, with teamwork at home if you think about it. And having that positive attitude will make that difference. Um, but the other thing is, as we've touched on earlier, it's really important that people, young people of any, and, and people of any age continue to exercise because a fit body is a fit mind. And that stayed with me since I was 16 when I was doing an apprenticeship at British Aerospace and we used to go on a Wednesday afternoon to football uh, sports day, if you like. And again, I asked because that's the type of person I was. Mm. I asked the instructor, why are we doing this? And he said, a fit body's a fit mind, you. I've never, ever forgot it. And it's extremely true. And it's never been truer than when you're facing pressures like we're all facing in today's COVID crisis. 
you're absolutely right there. A, a healthy mind does equal um, a healthy body and vice versa um, as well there, uh, Jim. I think that's very, very true. And sometimes it's a, a very easy piece of advice to forget, actually, just because people are so drawn into the hectic world of either being part of a business or running a business. And sometimes you do need to take back, take stock and just work on yourself a little bit. Um, thinking about the uh, the future now, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because I'm conscious that our time is starting to draw to a close. Um, we we know that for the immediate future, we're going to have to keep adjusting to the uh, the new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. But as we continue to get to grips with that challenge, and hopefully by next spring, leave COVID-19 behind forever, fingers crossed. What is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Howarth Airtech and where do you see yourselves being this time in a year? Well, I think we'll get through this year with our best performance ever. Um, and I think next year the signs are that we'll improve again. Um, one thing this is, has taught me is when you when you uh, read the Jim Collins Good to Great book, he, he talks about having the right people on the bus. You ne- don't necessarily know where the bus is going, but if you get the right people, they'll take you there. Well, one of the things we've got at Howarth now, more and more, is the right people on the bus. So... It's very hard, as you said, to pin down exactly where we'll be. What I do know is we'll continue to improve in all areas of the business. We'll continue to give the best possible customer service that we can, customer communications. We move from a, a sales-focused business to a customer-focused business. And I'm excited because I really do believe that with some of the actions we're taking, we can develop our overseas markets more. We know there's going to be a demand for increased um, drug production, for example. We also know there's going to be a, a, a demand to catch up on operations that have been that have been cancelled because of coronavirus. There are massive opportunities all around, and we just have to be prepared to take them, prepared to go that extra mile. And I know that we've got a team that will do that. So we've got competitors in all areas of our business. And we've got people doing exactly the same equipment that we do. What they haven't got and will never have is our Howard people. And that is what will take us on in the future. And that's what gives me the real excitement. That whatever we face, we'll continue to steadily improve this business. That's all that I'm expecting. We'll have an improved year next year. We're currently looking at our strategic development in all areas of the business. And in the last two years, we've come on leaps and bounds, and, and we're on, everything's underpinned by the Howarth way of our purpose, our people, and our behaviours. And that structure will continue to bring success to this business. And it is also exactly what leadership is all about. It's all about people. It's all about learning. It's all about continuous improvement and continuous development. And I think that is incredibly inspiring for anybody tuning into the programme today and listening to this, Jim. In fact, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us today and share your views with us, I actually think it would be wonderful at some point this next year to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along behind the scenes. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. I'd certainly really appreciate that. that. Certainly Thanks, would. Scott. It's been such a pleasure, Jim, welcoming you onto the uh, the program today, and I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the air. And uh, most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on in the world. And you, Scott, and uh, I really appreciate your time as well. Thank you. 
I'd also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes a real difference in saving lives during this time. It was an absolute pleasure to welcome Jim Liptrot, Managing Director at Howarth Air Tech, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords as well as Chairman of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and he enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held numerous senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his premiership and served as the MP for his own Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. That interview will be coming up shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save 
the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more 
seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary, often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.